Chapter Twenty Three of Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Metzler. Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood by George MacDonald. Chapter Twenty Three The Devil in the Vicar. I just wanted to pass the gate and look up the road towards Old Castle Hall. I thought to see nothing but the empty road between the leafless trees, lying there like a dead stream that would not bear me on to the sunny pleasure-dome with caves of ice that lay beyond. But just as I reached the gate, Miss Oldcastle came out of the lodge, where I learned afterwards the woman that kept the gate was ill. When she saw me she stopped, and I entered hurriedly and addressed her. But I could say nothing better than the merest commonplaces. For her old manner, which I had almost forgotten, a certain coldness shadowed with haughtiness, whose influence I had strongly felt when I began to make her acquaintance, had returned. I cannot make my reader understand how this could be blended with the sweetness in her face and the gentleness of her manners, but there the opposites were, and I could feel them both. There was likewise a certain drawing of herself away from me, which checked the smallest advance on my part, so that, I wonder at it now, but so it was, after a few words of very ordinary conversation, I bade her good morning and went away, feeling like a man forbid, as if I had done her some wrong, and she had chidden me for it. What a stone lay in my breast! I could hardly breathe for it. What could have caused her to change her manner towards me? I had made no advance, I could not have offended her. Yet there she glided up the road, and here stood I outside the gate. That road was now a flowing river that bore from me the treasure of the earth, while my boat was spellbound and could not follow. I would run after her, fall at her feet, and entreat to know wherein I had offended her. But there I stood enchanted, and there she floated away between the trees, till at last she turned the slow sweep, and I, breathing deep as she vanished from my sight, turned likewise, and walked back the dreary way to the village and now I knew that I had never been miserable in my life before. And I knew, too, that I had never loved her as I loved her now. But, as I had for the last ten years of my life been striving to be a right will, with a thousand failures and forgetfulnesses every one of those years, while yet the desire grew stronger as hope recovered from every failure, I would now try to do my work as if nothing had happened to incapacitate me for it. So I went on to fulfill the plan with which I had left home, including, as it did, a visit to Thomas Weir, whom I had not seen in his own shop since he had ordered me out of it. This, as far as I was concerned, was more accidental than intentional. I had, indeed, abstained from going to him for a while, in order to give him some time to come round, but then circumstances which I have recorded intervened to prevent me so that as yet no advance had been made on my part any more than on his towards a reconciliation, which, however, could have been such only on one side, for I had not been in the least offended by the way he had behaved to me, and needed no reconciliation. To tell the truth, I was pleased to find that my words had had force enough with him to rouse his wrath, anything rather than indifference, that the heart of the honest man would in the end write me, I could not doubt. In the meantime, 
I would see whether a friendly call might not improve the state of affairs. Till he yielded to the voice within him, however, I could not expect that our relation to each other would be quite restored. As long as he resisted his conscience, and knew that I sided with his conscience, it was impossible that he should regard me with peaceful eyes, however much he might desire to be friendly with me. I found him busy as usual, for he was one of the most diligent men I have ever known. But his face was gloomy, and I thought or fancied that the old scorn had begun once more to usurp the expression of it. Young Tom was not in the shop. "'It is a long time since I saw you now, Thomas.' "'I can hardly wonder at that,' he returned, as if he were trying to do me justice. But his eyes dropped, and he resumed his work, and said no more. I thought it better to make no reference to the past even by assuring him that it was not from resentment that I had been a stranger. "'How is Tom?' I asked. "'Well enough,' he returned. Then, with a smile of peevishness not unmingled with contempt, he added, "'He's getting too uppish for me. I don't think the Latin agrees with him.' I could not help suspecting at once how the matter stood, namely that the father, unhappy in his conduct to his daughter, and unable to make up his mind to do right with regard to her, had been behaving captiously and unjustly to his son, and so had rendered himself more miserable than ever. "'Perhaps he finds it too much for him without me,' I said evasively. "'But I called to-day partly to inform him that I am quite ready now to recommence our readings together, after which I hope you will find the Latin agree with him better.' "'I wish you would let him alone, sir. I mean, take no more trouble about him. You see, I can't do as you want me. I wasn't made to go another man's way, and so it's very hard, more than I can bear, to be under so much obligation to you. But you mistake me altogether, Thomas. It is for the lad's own sake that I want to go on reading with him, and you won't interfere between him and any use I can be of to him. I assure you, to have you go my way instead of your own is the last thing I could wish, though I confess I do wish very much that you would choose the right way for your own way. He made me no answer, but maintained a sullen silence. Thomas, I said at length, I had thought you were breaking every bond of Satan that withheld you from entering into the kingdom of heaven, but I fear he has strengthened his bands and holds you now as much a captive as ever. So it is not even your own way you are walking in, but his. It's no use your trying to frighten me. I don't believe in the devil. It is God I want you to believe in and I am not going to dispute with you now about whether there is a devil or not. In a matter of life and death we have no time for settling every disputed point. Life or death, what do you mean? I mean that whether you believe there is a devil or not, you know there is an evil power in your mind dragging you down. I am not speaking in generals. I mean now, and you know as to what I mean it. And if you yield to it, that evil power, whatever may be your theory about it, it will drag you down to death. It is a matter of life or death, I repeat, not of theory about the devil. Well, I always did say that if you once give a priest an inch, he'll take an L, and I am sorry I forgot it for once. Having said this, he shut up his mouth in a manner that indicated plainly enough that he would not open it again for some time. This, more than his speech, irritated me, and with a mere good morning, I walked out of the shop. No sooner was I in the open air than I knew that I too, I as well as poor Thomas Weir, was under a spell, 
knew that I had gone to him before I had recovered sufficiently from the mingled disappointment and mortification of my interview with Miss Oldcastle, that while I spoke to him I was not speaking with a whole heart, that I had been discharging a duty, as if I had been discharging a musket, that, although I had spoken the truth, I had spoken it ungraciously and selfishly. I could not bear it. I turned instantly and went back into the shop. Thomas, my friend, I said, holding out my hand. I beg your pardon. I was wrong. I spoke to you as I ought not. I was troubled in my own mind, and that made me lose my temper and be rude to you, who are far more troubled than I am. Forgive me. He did not take my hand at first, but stared at me as if, not comprehending me, he supposed that I was backing up what I had said last with more of the same sort. But by the time I had finished he saw what I meant. His countenance altered and looked as if the evil spirit were about to depart from him. He held out his hand, gave mine a great grasp, dropped his head, went on with his work, and said never a word. I went out of the shop once more, but in a greatly altered mood. On the way home I tried to find out how it was that I had that morning failed so signally. I had little virtue in keeping my temper, because it was naturally very even. Therefore I had the more shame in losing it. I had borne all my uneasiness about Miss Oldcastle without, as far as I knew, transgressing in this fashion till this very morning. Were great sorrows less hurtful to the temper than small disappointments? Yes, surely. But Shakespeare represents Brutus, after hearing of the sudden death of his wife, as losing his temper with Cassius to a degree that bewildered the latter, who said he did not know that Brutus could have been so angry. Is this consistent with the character of the stately-minded Brutus, or with the dignity of sorrow? It is. For the loss of his wife alone would have made him only less irritable. But the whole weight of an army, with its distracting cares and conflicting interests, pressed upon him, and the battle of an empire was to be fought at daybreak, so that he could not be alone with his grief. Between the silence of death in his mind, and the roar of life in his brain, he became irritable. Looking yet deeper into it, I found that till this morning I had experienced no personal mortification with respect to Miss Oldcastle. It was not the mere disappointment of having no more talk with her, for the sight of her was a blessing I had not in the least expected, that had worked upon me, but the fact that she had repelled or seemed to repel me, and thus I found that self was at the root of the wrong I had done to one over whose mental condition, especially while I was telling him the unwelcome truth. I ought to have been as tender as a mother over her wounded child. I could not say that it was wrong to feel disappointed, or even mortified, but something was wrong when one whose especial business it was to serve his people in the name of him who was full of grace and truth, made them suffer because of his own inward pain. No sooner had I settled this in my mind than my trouble returned with a sudden pang. Had I actually seen her that morning, and spoken to her? and left her with a pain in my heart? What if that face of hers was doomed ever to bring with it such a pain, to be ever to me no more than a lovely vision radiating grief? If so, I would endure in silence and as patiently as I could, trying to make up for the lack of brightness in my own fate by causing more brightness in the fate of others. I would at least keep on trying to do my work. That moment I felt a little hand poke itself into mine. I looked down, and there was Gerard Weir looking up in my face. 
I found myself in the midst of the children coming out of school, for it was Saturday and a half-holiday. He smiled in my face, and I hope I smiled in his, and so, hand in hand, we went on to the vicarage, where I gave him up to my sister. But I cannot convey to my reader any notion of the quietness that entered my heart with the grasp of that childish hand. I think it was the faith of the boy in me that comforted me, but I could not help thinking of the words of our Lord about receiving a child in his name, and so receiving him. By the time we reached the vicarage my heart was very quiet. As the little boy held by my hand, so I seemed to be holding by God's hand, and a sense of heart security, as well as soul safety, awoke in me, and I said to myself, Surely he will take care of my heart as well as of my mind and my conscience. For one blessed moment I seemed to be at the very centre of things, looking out quietly upon my own troubled emotions as upon something outside of me, apart from me, even as one from the firm rock may look abroad upon the vexed sea. And I thought I then knew something of what the Apostle meant when he said, Your life is hid with Christ in God. I knew that there was a deeper self than that which was thus troubled. I had not had my usual ramble this morning, and was otherwise ill-prepared for the Sunday. So I went early into the church, but finding that the sexton's wife had not yet finished lighting the stove, I sat down by my own fire in the vestry. Suppose I am sitting there now while I say one word for our congregations in winter. I was very particular in having the church well warmed before Sunday. I think some parsons must neglect seeing after this matter on principle, because warmth may make a weary creature go to sleep here and there about the place, as if any healing doctrine could enter the soul while it is on the rack of the frost. The clergy should see, for it is their business, that their people have no occasion to think of their bodies at all while they are in church. They have enough ado to think of the truth. When our Lord was feeding even their bodies, he made them all sit down on the grass. It is worth noticing that there was much grass in the place, a rare thing I should think in those countries, and therefore perhaps it was chosen by him for their comfort in feeding their souls and bodies both. If I may judge from experiences of my own, one of the reasons why some churches are of all places the least likely for anything good to be found in is that they are as wretchedly cold to the body as they are to the soul, too cold every way for anything to grow in them. Edelweiss noble white as they call a plant growing under the snow on some of the alps could not survive the winter in such churches there is small welcome in a cold house and the clergyman who is the steward should look to it it is for him to give his master's friends a welcome to his master's house for the welcome of a servant is precious and nowadays is very rare and now mrs stone must have finished i go into the old church which looks as if it were quietly waiting for its people no, she has not done yet. Never mind. How full of meaning the vaulted roof looks, as if, having gathered a soul of its own out of the generations that have worshipped here for so long, it had feeling enough to grow hungry for a psalm before the end of the week. Some such half-foolish fancy was now passing through my tranquilized mind, or rather heart, for the mind would have rejected it at once, when to my—what shall I call it—not amazement, for the delight was too strong for amazement— the old organ woke up and began to think aloud. As if it had been brooding over it all the week in the wonderful convolutions of its wooden brain, 
it began to sing out to the agnus dei of mozart's twelfth mass upon the air of the still church which lay swept and garnished for the sunday how could it be i know now and i guessed then and my guess was right and my reader must be content to guess too i took no step to verify my conjecture for i felt that i was upon my honour but sat in one of the pews and listened till the old organ sobbed itself into silence then i heard the steps of the sexton's wife vanish from the church heard her lock the door and knew that i was alone in the ancient pile with the twilight growing thick about me and felt like sir galahad when after the rolling organ harmony he heard wings flutter voices hover clear in a moment the mood changed and i was sorry not that the dear organ was dead for the night but actually felt gently mournful that the wonderful old thing never had and never could have a conscious life of its own so strangely does the passion which i had not invented reader whoever thou art that thinkest love and a church do not well harmonize so strangely i say full to overflowing of its own vitality does it radiate life that it would even of its own superabundance quicken into blessed consciousness the inanimate objects around it thinking that they would feel had they a consciousness correspondent to their form were their faculties moved from within themselves instead of from the will and operation of humanity i lingered on long in the dark church as my reader knows i had done often before nor did i move from the seat i had first taken till i left the sacred building and there i made my sermon for the next morning and herewith i impart it to my reader but he need not be afraid of another such as i have already given him for i impart it only in its original germ its concentrated essence of sermon these four verses had i the grace to win the grace of some old man complete in love my face would worship at his face like childhood seated on the floor had i the grace to win the grace of childhood loving shy apart the child should find a nearer place and teach me resting on my heart had i the grace to win the grace of maiden living all above my soul would trample down the base that she might have a man to love a grace i have no grace to win knocks now at my half-open door ah lord of glory come thou in thy grace divine is all and more this is what i made for myself i told my people that god had created all our worships reverences tendernesses loves that they had come out of his heart and he had made them in us because they were in him first that otherwise he could not have cared to make them that all that we could imagine of the wise the lovely the beautiful was in him only infinitely more of them than we could n not merely imagine but understand even if he did all he could to explain them to us to make us understand them that in him was all the wise teaching of the best man ever known in the world and more all the grace and gentleness and truth of the best child and more all the tenderness and devotion of the truest type of womankind and more for there's a love that passes the love of woman not the love of jonathan to david though david said so but the love of god to the men and women whom he has made therefore we must be all gods and all our aspirations all our worships all our honours 
all our loves must center in him the best end of chapter 23 recording by eric metzler albuquerque new mexico united states of america